But this morning we're looking at repairing the rift, how a biblically shaped worldview brings unity to our lives and to our witness. And just to review just briefly, last week we looked at diagnosing the divide. We looked at a divide that is seen in most of modern life. This is a divide in our thinking, and we illustrated it in several ways with an upper story and a lower story. And the upper story is the spiritual, the moral, the private, the values of people. And in the lower story is the physical, the public, the occupations, the sciences, the facts. And it's a split that has sliced our lives right down the middle. Religion and morality has been moved to the upper story. And while our science, our public policy, and our education are in the lower story. And therefore, we live our lives every day that's been stripped of its meaning and that uh, have these two realms that just don't line up. And Christians have been just as much a product of this thinking as those in the secular world. I'll give you one example. A, A woman named Sarah. She lived in the Bible Belt of the U.S. She grew up in church and learned that Jesus had saved her from her sins and that she would go to heaven if she died. But in her education, growing up and into college, she swallowed the secular philosophy that was taught there. Therefore, she had her spiritual life characterized by Bible reading and church attendance, and her secular life, which was her education and her job. And those two worlds never mixed. In fact, after graduating from college, Sarah ended up working at a Planned Parenthood clinic. Not seeing the contradiction between her profession of faith and her occupation because there was such a divide between the two. In fact, her and her co-workers who all attended church there in the Bible Belt would spend time, their breaks at the Planned Parenthood clinic talking about their Bible studies and their kids' Sunday school classes. Again, not seeing the contradiction that's in their very lives. But this is is all over. You can even see this in uh, Christian universities. Because so many of these quote-unquote Christian universities are awash with professors who are caught in the same trap. They trained at the elite secular schools and they have the same divide down their thinking. Bible departments that talk about faith in Jesus while denying the historicity of the Bible. English departments that have adopted deconstructionism and postmodernism. Science departments fully committed to a naturalistic explanation of the world while still saying that they believe the Bible. So this is everywhere we look around us. Our secular society, even secular sociologists, talk about it in terms of the fact-value split. We have our values up here, and we have the facts that are publicly verifiable down here, and these are binding on everybody. And so the result of this split is that in our society today, Christianity is put up in the value sphere, which is the sphere of personal preference. It's seen simply as a hobby, like fishing or crafting. You can do that on the weekends. You can do that on your own personal time. That's great. But why are you bringing your hobby up at work? Why are you bringing your hobby up in the classroom? Listen, we're talking about science here. We're not talking about your own person, what you do on the weekends. You know, hobbies don't really affect the rest of our lives. And so we talked about how this affects, affects us, right? It affects our evangelism. Our witness for Christ uh, is handicapped because we are simply speaking about this upper sphere to a lot of people. We talk about our values and our story, and they just hear a hobby, uh, something that is privatized to you, and that's great. But why are you telling me about it? Rather than presenting it as objective truth that... Uh, encompasses all of life and it affects our daily lives if you spend your time in the public sphere every day whether that's in the classroom or whether that's at your job then we this divide can keep us from seeing how a biblical worldview applies to the very things that we do that we spend hours a day doing or maybe you spend your day at home and you're left wondering if what you do has any real significance at all because you're not out there doing the real work Well, today I want to help us repair this rift in our thinking and our lives. And the only way we're going to do that is by having a well-developed Christian worldview. 
And so this morning, I want to give you the framework in which to build this worldview. This is like the framework of a house. Uh, we're not going to be able to put the sheetrock up. We're not going to be able to decorate and everything else. We're just going to be putting studs of the walls up, the framework that will take a lifetime to get fleshed out. Now, for those who maybe aren't as acquainted with the term worldview, uh, I just give, want to briefly introduce you to that. It simply is the, uh, a set of beliefs by which you look through and see the world. It's how you view the world. It is the lens by which we look at life. And this is why two people can look at the same piece of data and come to two completely different conclusions. It's because the lens that they're looking through distorts the very data that they're looking at. And so this is, uh, this is what a worldview is. It changes how we see the world. So this morning, we're going to see the three pillars of a Christian worldview. Three pillars of a Christian worldview so that our lives and our witness will be wholly integrated and wholly biblical. Now, these three pillars come from three questions that every worldview needs to answer. Okay? So the, the, the three pillars we're going to give you this morning really come from a bigger, broader three questions that every single worldview out there that people hold to needs to answer these questions. The first question is, where did we come from? Where did we come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why are we here? Every worldview that people hold to needs to answer that question. Secondly, they need to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? Why is there evil and suffering? What is going on? And thirdly, what can we do about it? What will make the world right again? And every worldview has its answers to these questions but the reality is, is that whatever answer you give to those questions, it needs to make sense, make sense with your world around you. It's got to fit with the data of experience. In other words, as you go live your lives every day, your answers to these questions need to fit how you live it out. And I'll tell you this, that every single worldview that's not based upon the revelation of God will fail its, its uh, test drive at some point. It answers these questions, and then you take it out into real life, and it doesn't line up. It doesn't line up. Because this is God's universe, this is God's world, and any explanation that throws him out to begin with won't make sense of his world. So, let's begin looking at these three pillars for us this morning. Pillar number one is creation. Pillar number one is creation. Why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because God created. So the first point in creation is that God is the source of all things and thus is Lord over all. This world and the entire cosmos was created out of nothing, uh, out of nothing by the triune God. And so you guys can open your Bibles to the first page of your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins making a declaration of fact, not of value, not of preference, but of a fact about this world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was hovering over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has made it all. And obviously we can turn to tons of scriptures that talk about God creating this world. Uh, Mike started out our service this morning reading from Psalm 33 that mentioned the very same things. But let's uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1. This was in our reading this morning as well, but important for us to see. In Genesis 1, it says God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was there hovering over the face of the waters. And then here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is Christ, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the creator of this world. He's the sustainer of this world. Nothing receives its existence from any other source. There is not a thing on this planet that finds its source from anything else but God. He created it and he sustains it. And therefore, because he created it and therefore he owns it, he is deserving of all worship and praise. Flip to Revelation chapter 4. Those of you who have gone through the two ways to live class should be familiar with this verse. Revelation chapter 4, verse 12. Verse 11, sorry, there is no 12. Don't worry, I'm not adding any verses. Um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Therefore, God is deserving of all of the worship and all the praise of every single creature on this planet because he created it all. Jesus Christ is Lord over this universe. Thus, his word and his laws give this world order and structure. Everything that we have, the order and structure that we see around us is all because of the creator God. It all stems from him. His word is the source of all laws of physical nature which we study in the natural sciences. His word is also the source of laws of human nature. Things such as the principles of morality or ethics, the principles of justice and politics, principles of of creative enterprise or economics, of aesthetics, the arts, and even of clear thinking like logic. All of this finds its root in God. Nothing can exist apart from the creator God. And therefore, all those fields of study and human knowledge and human disciplines all ultimately find their source in the creator God. That's why Psalm 119 verse 91 says, All things are your servants. All things are servants of God. There is nothing that we do that does not relate to God because everything came from God. Therefore, get this, All of life is spiritual. There is no secular part of life and then a spiritual part of life. All of life is spiritual because all of life comes from God. There is nothing in your life over which God does not have an opinion. You see, the first step to building a Christian worldview is to be utterly convinced that there is a biblical perspective on absolutely everything. Absolutely everything not just on spiritual matters. The claims of the the Bible get into everything in society, everything in life. And this is simply because Christ is Lord over everything. He's not just Lord over spiritual matters. He's not just Lord over uh, getting souls into heaven, although he's Lord over that. He's Lord over everything in this universe. Some of you have maybe heard the, the line from the theologian Abraham Kuyper who said it this way. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus looks over every molecule in every corner of this globe and says, that belongs to me because I created it. So if we're going to gain a truthful knowledge about this world, we must begin with God. We must begin with the source of all things. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? That's what Proverbs 1 verse 7 says. We must begin with God if we're going to know this world truly. But do you see how this destroys that secular, sacred secular split that we talked about? Everything in our secular society puts in this lower story in the secular part of life is still directly related to God. God has an opinion about those things. He's Lord over it. Politics, education, jobs, business, all these things have their source in God. And therefore, we can step into those arenas of life with confidence because they belong to Christ. They don't belong to the secular world. They don't belong to the unbelieving first and foremost. They first belong to Christ. 
we can account for these things in our worldview while other worldviews can't. And so this is the foundation for unity in all of our lives. The foundation to, to blowing apart the sacred-secular split in our lives is to see Christ as Lord over everything, and therefore he owns it all, and all of life is spiritual. The second point in creation is that all that God created was good. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the creation account, after each day God creates something, and he said, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. The clear understanding then is that this created world was initially created good. You see, the split between spiritual is good and material is bad doesn't hold up in a biblical worldview because God created the physical. He created the material and therefore the material was originally created good. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, for everything created by God is good. Now, while hating sin, yes, Christians should still have a deep love for this world as God's handiwork. We should see through its brokenness and sin and to its original created goodness. We should be known as people in love with the beauties of nature and the wonders of human creativity. Because God created this world good. We can enjoy this world because God created it. Thirdly, in creation. Humans were created special. Humans were created special. This is very clear. You get to the end of the creation count, and it says that God created man and woman in his image. This is very unique from the rest of what came before. God spoke to himself and said, let us make man in our image. This was the first finite creature made in the image of the creator. This Humanity would embody the image and likeness of God. You see, the Christian worldview tells us as human beings that we were created special. We are different from the rest of the world. We are more than a machine. We are more than an animal. We are a very special part of God's creation, which was very good. The refrain after creating mankind was, and God saw that it was very good. So, you have value and significance in the eyes of God. You were made in his image. This is the foundation for personal identity and understanding who we are in this world is that first and foremost, our creator God made us in his image. And that places us on a higher plane than anything else in all of the world. And this is why Christians should be radically pro-life. Radically pro, pro-life and against all forms of racism. Because God values every single person, therefore we should as well. Every person, no matter what stage of development or what level of capacity, whether in the womb, disabled, failing health, or old, is an eternal soul made in the image of God. And so we value people because God values people. This is the implication of a Christian worldview. Lastly, under creation, number four, is that humanity was commissioned. Flip to Genesis chapter one. Again, this is the pillar, the foundation of the Christian worldview is here to understand that that humanity was commissioned. So, I've already seen verse 27, that God created man in his image. And then verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was mankind's original job description. God worked up to build this special creation and he didn't just put them there to suddenly figure out something to do. He gave them a task. He gave them a job to do. And this is what is called the cultural mandate. This commission is composed of two parts. The first is to be fruitful and multiply. And yes, at its most foundational level, that means to form families and have babies. But it extends out, the implication is it extends out farther than that. It, it's, it's, a, it's a command to develop the social world of humanity to build families, to build schools, to build cities, governments, laws, churches, 
to establish the social world of humanity. Secondly, it says to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. This idea of cultivation and taking care of the earth. Mankind was commissioned to take care of the earth. And this means to harness the natural world, to plant crops, to build computers, to compose music, to take the raw materials of the world and bring it into something beautiful, something useful. And as humanity does that across the globe, they're fulfilling the job description that God gave mankind to do. Now, God originally had mankind do this all under the lordship of God and said, listen, do this in such a way that every little thing that you do is done under the glory of your creator. You create these cities and you build these computers and you, and you make things in this world because you want to bring glory to the one who is lord over you. We know that our world doesn't do that, which is what we'll look at in a minute. So, Just wrapping up this pillar on creation. We need to understand fully what the Bible says about creation and the implications that it has for our lives because this is the foundational pillar. Everything else down the road will get messed up if you aren't good or aren't right on creation. I've got a quote from Francis Schaeffer here. He says, Every worldview has to start somewhere. Again, this is the every worldview has to answer that first question. Why are we here? Either we can start with time plus chance plus an impersonal force, or we can begin with a personal being who thinks, wills, and acts. Again, every worldview has to start somewhere. Either you're going to start with the creator God or you're going to replace it with something else. And that affects everything downstream. The question of origins is crucial We cannot give up this ground. We must be able to defend a biblical view of creation because this is the foundation of it all. Now, you try to bring that up and someone's going to say, oh, listen, whoa, time out. You're bringing in your values in here. We're talking science. But see, that's a bogus bogus accusation because, you see, Darwinism and creationism aren't, uh, they're not different subjects. They're different answers to the same question. They're different answers to the same question. How did life arise in the universe? This presupposition, this worldview answers it one way, and this presupposition, this worldview answers another way. So, although it'll get your local science teacher foaming at the mouth, uh, we must winfully, winsomely, and lovingly try to continue to show that this is the case. So let's move on to the second pillar. First pillar is creation. Second pillar is the fall. All things have been created by God. The creation is comprehensive, but the fall is also comprehensive. The first point under the fall that we need to see is that Adam and Eve's sin affected the entire creation. We were just reading in Genesis chapter 1, a beautiful place in paradise where mankind was, was lovingly submitted to their creator God. You understand that they were made special and commissioned to have a special job on this earth. And God placed them in the garden and and, and placed great responsibility upon them. Responsibility on them that no one else had, no other creature had. And yet, it's only a couple chapters later in chapter 3 that they choose to rebel against their creator. They choose um, independence over dependence. They choose a rebellious independence over worshipful dependence on the Creator. And in doing so, they chose death over life. And this resulted in death spreading to all, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to every single person. But this sin didn't just affect humanity. Uh, Genesis 3 and Romans 8 indicate that it affected all of creation. In some ways, the natural world has also been affected by mankind's sin. You see, there was not a corner of the globe that was not affected by the fall. And there's not a person who has escaped the corruption that came from Adam and Eve's fall from perfection. Every child downstream from Adam and Eve has this disease of sin. It's inescapable. 
The second point under the fall is that sin is an idolatry of the heart. Sin is an idolatry of the heart. And for this, we're going to flip over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The passage that Dave, Pastor David called the deep, dark descent of man. Shows the wickedness of our hearts. We're going to start in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We'll stop right there. This passage shows us that the root of all sin is idolatry, that the great Living God has been replaced in every human heart with a substitute God. The word exchanged is used multiple times in this passage. Mankind has, has taken the worship of God and exchanged it for something else, something within this created realm that they are going to now worship and serve. And so the fundamental problem with every single human being is an idolatry of the heart. The fact that we worship something in this created realm more than God. You see, other worldviews try to place the problem with us as outside of us. They like to say that, well, the problem is our environment. You know, it's, 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 the, it's the house you grew up in, it's the parents, it's the school, it's the neighborhood, it's the country. It's, it's something around you, and that's why that there's, there's problems. That's why uh, you do the bad things you do. Or they say it's the overall society, or... It's the laws that have been pushed upon you and, and they suppress you and they, and they make you do certain things. But see, the Bible says that the problem with this world is internal, not external. It's the problem of our hearts. Jesus said that from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, and the list goes on. He says all these things come out of the heart of man. That is where all of this evil and suffering we see in the world comes from, is from the wicked, sinful hearts. So how does this relate to the sacred-secular split? It means that evil is not intrinsic in this material world. We mentioned that when we talked about this world being created good. The things in this world are not inherently evil. Evil is caused when mankind uses it for their evil purposes. Things in this world become unclean when sinners use them to show their rebellion. Nancy Piercy describes this well. She gives several examples. She says, for example, music is good, but popular songs can be used to glorify moral perversion. Science is a vocation from God, but it can be used to undermine belief in a creator. Sexuality was God's idea in the first place. But it can be distorted and twisted to serve selfish and hedonistic purposes. Work. It's a calling from God. But in an American corporate culture, it's often an addiction. A frenzied scramble for a higher rung on the corporate ladder, a bigger salary, a more impressive resume. Even ministry. Ministry is used to serve the church. But ministry leaders can be driven by spiritual pride or can gloss over sin in order to advance the ministry. You see, 
The problem is in the heart of humans, not in the very things themselves. And so our job then is in every area of life, we need to distinguish between the way God originally created the world and the way it has been deformed and defaced by sin. Be able to separate that apart so that we don't lump it all together and say this something is evil when really the problem is the way it's being used, not necessarily the object itself. So this idolatry is in our heart and it affects every aspect of our beings, our minds, our hearts. And Paul gives a a pretty accurate description of what this looks like, how this affects us in Ephesians chapter 4. I've got this can follow along on the screen. He says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, as we look at that description... How would you expect the world around you to look? It would look pretty messed up, huh? And in one sense, it is messed up. We just have to turn on the news, open the newspaper, open our news app, and we, uh, we see how messed up this world is. But it's not as messed up as it could be. And that's the third point I want us to talk about here under the fall. Is that people don't act as wickedly as they could because of God's common grace. Because of God's common grace. How do we as Christians who look at the world and understand that every human heart is desperately wicked. And yet we go out in the world and we interact with unbelievers who are largely kind to us. And they're doing, a lot of them are doing great things out there. And they're advancing, uh, advancing their field in whatever they're studying or wherever they're working. We explain that because of common grace. Now, common doesn't mean uh, something to throw away. It simply means it's shared by all. Common, such as common knowledge or common sense. And it's, it's a kind of grace, not God's special grace in which he redeems, but a common grace given to all in which he's being kind to those who don't deserve his kindness. He's being kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And there's two main functions of God's common grace. One is provision and the other is restraint. His common grace is that he provides food for everyone on this planet. He provides food for the animals. He is giving grace to those who are ungrateful. The ungrateful world enjoys great food at great restaurants from great grocery stores. And they don't thank God one bit for it. Does God cut off their food supply? No, he continues to grant it to them. But he also restrains mankind from being as evil as they could be. Because evil turns everyone into themselves and away from other people. If we all lived truly uh, consistent with our sinful nature, we would hate everybody. We would pull into ourselves and be isolated from everybody else. Completely destroying our lives and any sort of social world. But we know that's not the case. This restraining work is at work every day. You see, sin produces laziness. Makes a man not want to work. To act selfishly. And yet God enables millions of Men and women to get up every day to go to their job and provide for their families. Sin should say, you, would, you don't want to do that. And yet they, they do that because of God's common grace. Sin tears apart relationships. And yet there are still millions of families in the world that are still together. Sure, they're deformed. Sure, they're not all that God intended them to be. But the fact that an unbelieving family can remain together is an act of God's common grace. Sin unanchors us from the source of rationality, which is God, and moves us toward irrationality. And yet, we see unbelievers in so many fields of study continuing to make progress. They do helpful research for us. They, uh, unbelieving musicians produce beautiful music. That's an act of God's common grace. So God is restraining the effects of sin in this world. It doesn't negate the fall. Don't Don't hear me saying that. The sin is still there. The fall is still there. It just dulls the pain a little bit. It's like a baby aspirin. Sin is still in the human heart, but we see glimmers of God's image glistening through that distorted human heart on a regular basis. So lastly, under the aspect of the fall, we see that 
Every perspective is unavoidably religious. Sorry, it's not last stage, it's just number four. Every perspective is unavoidably religious. So if we understand that every single human being has swapped out God for something else, that means they are all idolatrous at heart. That means that every single person is religious. No one can can claim that they have removed themselves from religion. Romans 1 is clear. They've exchanged God for a lie. They haven't stopped worshiping. They've just decided to worship something else. Humanity is hardwired for worship and they can't get away from it. They might try to claim that they have, but they can't. And so this means that every product mankind produces, whether it be a movie, a song, a book, a social media post, a text message, or your textbook, comes from a religious perspective. It will either be a believing worldview or it will be an unbelieving worldview. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. Unbelief is just as religious as unbelief. And don't let anyone convince you otherwise. You see, this is one of the ways that Christians have been easily deceived in our society today. We've bought into what is called secular neutrality. Secular neutrality. We can put that, uh, that, graph, that first graphic up. They like to claim that there's all these religions in the world, and they've been able to pull away from it all, have an objective view, and they've kind of just removed all the traces of religion from their life, and they're now in this place called secular neutrality. It's like, uh, you know, Cheerios recently became gluten-free. They're the same Cheerios, they just don't have the gluten in it, right? And in the same way, these people say, hey, we're the same people, we're doing the same exact stuff, we just don't have any of the religion there. We've just cleaned all that up, we've moved that out, we've pushed it out of our workplace, we've pushed it out of our schools, don't worry, there's no religion here. this is false. While we're committed to belief in the triune God, they are just as committed to unbelief in the triune God. It's a religious position. And in fact, Christianity is the only one with objectivity because God is the only truly objective one. He's the only one who's outside of creation and can see it all. And so you can flip to the next graphic where they're essentially swapped. In the top, you have unbelief. In the bottom half, you have belief. That's the true split that puts Christianity apart from everything else. But everything up there is religious. So what does this mean for us? This means that we need to be on the lookout for the ways that this secular neutrality can can creep into our thinking and into our lives. This means that you cannot accept blindly the professional standards and practices in your field of work or study. You can't just read the latest self-help book or the latest um, business practice book and read it blindly thinking that you can just accept whatever they have. They have helpful things for sure by God's common grace. But it comes from an unbelieving perspective. It is a religious perspective. Those views are either based on belief or unbelief. For example, uh, lawyers. It's common in lawyer practice today to simply try to win the case. It doesn't matter whether the person's in the right or the wrong. Morality and ethics is totally thrown out the window. It's all about winning the case. But you see, a Christian worldview applied into that field can't do that. We care about right and wrong. We care about people. We care about justice. In the business field, we can't just care about the bottom line. We care about people. So we can't blindly accept everything that is pushed at us. Students, this means you can't blindly accept what your teachers say in the government school system. In public schools and colleges, this myth of neutrality is promoted. But an unbelieving worldview is mandated at the foundation for all instruction. Again, they've swept out all religion. It's not that it's religion-free. It's actually a different religion, the religion of unbelief. And so they're not teaching subjects neutrally. They're teaching them unbelievingly. And you need to know that. You need to be aware of that. You need to listen to your teachers critically and understand what is good and what goes against God's word. So lastly, let's look at The lessons to learn from the fall. And I'll go over these quickly. We'll jump to our third pillar. 
A few lessons we can walk away. What, what can we walk away with from the, the, the fall and as a pillar of the biblical worldview? One is that only the biblical view of sin accurately makes sense of the world. If you look around at other worldviews and how they explain uh, why this, there's so much evil and suffering in the world, it's almost laughable to try to, uh, as, as we try to apply that to what we see every day. It doesn't make sense, but the, the biblical worldview that it comes from the heart of sin makes sense. The second thing we can learn is that the problem with this world is not anything in creation. We've mentioned this a few times. But it's because of our deceitful hearts that abuse God's creation. That's where sin comes from. The third thing we can learn from the fall is that we need to remember the fallenness of the people around us and have compassion on them. As we understand the fall as a pillar of a Christian worldview, part of our lens by which we look at the entire world, we understand the fall. We understand it has affected everybody, and that should give us a deep compassion for the people around us. They are operating the way they are operating because sin has so twisted them. The disease of sin has so warped their view and so warped their heart and so warped their desires that they do things that hurt other people. They do things that hurt themselves. And we, of all people, understand why. We don't get angry at them. We have compassion on them because we know where it comes from. We need to remember our, uh, remember our own fallenness as well. We all still deal with effects of the fall. Yes, Christ has broken the power of sin in the believer's life, but the presence of sin is still there. And we battle that every day. But we need to remember that the effects of the fall are still present in our lives as well, and this should humble us. The last lesson we should learn from the fall is that the Bible doesn't begin at the fall, so neither should our gospel message. The Bible doesn't begin at the fall, and therefore neither should our gospel message. You see, if we start by simply walking up to them and telling them that they're a sinner, then we are presenting a view of, of, of biblical worldview that starts with people being bad. But see, the biblical worldview starts at creation. Understand that everyone was created good. Everyone has, has high value in the sight of God. See, Christianity has been, uh, the attack has been made on it that, that we have a low view of people because we talk about people being sinners all the time. But see, sin is so tragic because mankind is so significant and so valuable. We don't, we don't have a problem with, with breaking something from the 99 cent store, but when we break the china that's been passed down from generation to generation, that valuable piece, valuable heirloom, it breaks your heart. And that's why the fall, the biblical view of the fall is so tragic is because God created mankind at the height of his creation, placed them with great responsibility, and they turned their backs on that. And they rebelled against their creator. And so we need to present our gospel message in that same way. That mankind is valuable in the sight of God, but we've all fallen from that. We've all turned away from that. Well, let's quickly then look at our last pillar of the biblical worldview. Pillar one, creation. Pillar two, fall. Pillar three, redemption. The first point is that Jesus redeems us from our sin. These are the, this is the basic gospel truth that you all know well. If sin is the problem, then a sin crusher is what we need, and that came in the person of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Only Jesus answers the cry of our hearts. Only Jesus can heal the disease of our sin. And through Jesus' death on the cross... He paid the penalty for our sin, and in rising from the dead, he did what was needed to reverse the curse. And so the calling upon us is for us to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. And all who do that are redeemed. They are secured a place in God's future kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. We saw this this morning in Colossians chapter 1 where he says that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ is redemption. In Christ is the forgiveness of our sins that we're all longing for. But later on in that passage, it says that Christ is reconciling all things by the blood of his cross. Things in heaven and things on earth are being reconciled back to God. All of this cosmos was affected by sin. All of this cosmos will be remade through the blood of Christ in the new heavens and new earth at the end of time. So the first 
part of redemption is that Jesus Christ redeems us from our sin. The second is that redemption is comprehensive. Jesus doesn't just save our souls and leave the rest of us. He saves our mind, our souls, our bodies, our spirits. He he redeems everything about us. Nothing is untouched. Conversion is a new direction to our thoughts, our will, our emotions, our habits. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 12, right? Where Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The expectation that everything about us from inward moving outward Soul and body, mind, is all directed to the love of God because Christ has redeemed the whole person. So we cast aside our idols. We turn from worshiping something in creation to to worshiping God. And as we do that, we see God's transforming power in our lives, reorienting our direction back to him. And so as we talk about a Christian worldview, we're talking about a life that's built upon the scriptures, a life that sees all the world through the lens of the Bible. It's rebuilt on his revealed truth. That brings us to our third and last point for the morning under redemption, and that is that redemption is not just about being saved from sin, but being saved to something. We cut our message short when we say we're just saved from our sin. Okay, great. Now we're just here. We're in this redeemed state. Cool. And we've all just make, you know, we all got the sticker that says I'm redeemed, right? And, but no, God, God has redeemed us to something. He set us to action. And that was to resume the task for which we were originally created. Guys, this brings us back to mankind being commissioned. Yes, the fall has distorted creation, but it hasn't abrogated it. It hasn't thrown it aside. We live out our humanity under the lordship of Christ by fulfilling the cultural mandate that was given back in Genesis chapter 1. And yes, unbelievers do these things too, right? Uh, they, They are multiplying and filling the earth. They're getting married, having families, starting schools, running businesses. They're also cultivating the earth. They're, they're fixing cars, writing books, studying nature, inventing new gadgets. But that just proves the point. They are doing what they were created to do. They can't escape from the very purpose that we are hardwired to do. This is what God made them to do. They were designed to be fruitful and multiply and to cultivate the earth. They can't avoid it. And so God is glorified in what we do every day. As we are about these things in your occupations, in your jobs, in your homes, we are fulfilling this command that was given to us at the very beginning as humans who have responsibility over this planet. And God is, is glorified in it because he commissioned us to do it and, he's, and he invented it. What we do every day is not second class. It's the high calling that God has created us to do. And this is how we express the image of God, is by being creative and creating cultures. And so the lesson of the cultural mandate for us is that our sense of fulfillment in this life is meant to come from doing creative work to the glory of God. Creative work to the glory of God as we submit to his lordship over us. We don't create things in order to show how great we are in our rebellion against God. That's what the unbelieving world's trying to do. We create things in humble submission and loving submission to our creator to say, God, I want to show you off in how I make this. I want to show you off in how I play this musical piece. I want to show you off in how I build this machine. I want to show you off in how I I treat customers every day. We're looking to glorify God in, in what we do. But this means that the ideal human existence is not eternal vacation or leisure. And this is what our society is hooked on, right? You work the work week so you can get to the weekend. You work uh, throughout your, your year so you can get to your vacation, as if the vacation and the weekend is the pinnacle of our human existence. But see, the, the cultural mandate reminds us that God created us to work. We find our joy and satisfaction in working. And nor is our ideal existence to just sit away and pray as the monks tried to do. God created us to expend creative effort for the glory of God. 
We do this for God's glory, for the good of other people. We live to serve God and live to serve others. And guys, this should change what we do every day. It should change our perspective about the daily grind. It's a daily chance to show off God to this world as we live and work under his lordship, under his kind, benevolent rule. Because you see, redemption is not a one-time conversion event. Redemption is a lifelong quest to live for the glory of God in all of life. So these are the three pillars of a Christian worldview. The the basic structure by which we see the world, creation, fall, redemption. And you've probably already thought of 10 different things that I didn't didn't touch on, and it's true. There's a lot I missed because I couldn't fit it all in. But that's because the Bible is deeply rich. It says that all the treasures of wisdom are found in Christ. We need to go to the word of God. We need to study what he has revealed about himself and then head out into our world with great creative effort. We cannot relegate Christianity to the value realm. We need to understand that God speaks to all of life. God created all of life. It's total truth. All of life is spiritual. This world tries to offer a worldview in which there's a split. They, they look at the facts and say, this is how you need to live your life, but they can't explain the immaterial part of life, why they love their kids, why, why there's good in this world, why there's morality. And so we need to show that Christianity alone meets the hunger for an overarching, consistent worldview that gives sense and sanity to all of life. May God give us grace as we grow in this together. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we have just studied how great you are and all that you have done. You've created us out of nothing. You've placed us here to fulfill your will. And Father, you have redeemed us. You have saved us from the fall. You have saved us from the sin of our own hearts. I pray, O oh God, as we look to be ambassadors for Christ in this world today. That you'd help us to do the hard work of building a Christian worldview from your word and then the hard work of loving people and stepping out into our work and jobs and lives every day and declaring that your word is totally true for every area of life, for every person who's ever lived. We do Humbly ask for your grace in helping us to learn to grow in these areas. In Christ's name, amen.